Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendero, and in this episode, I sit down with artist and teacher Tom Richards. This episode was recorded exactly a year ago in January of 2020, when I had the pleasure of visiting with Tom in his painting studio in Florence, Italy. Originally from London, Tom is the assistant director of the Florence Academy of Fine Art and principal advanced painting instructor. In recent years, Tom has exhibited his work in London and undertaken numerous commissions in Europe and beyond. In this episode, we talk about what drew him to painting and fine art. We talk about the Florence Academy's approach to teaching, the importance of keeping a sketchbook, and the painters that inspire him. We also talk about the parallels of painting and photography and how to hone one's approach to seeing. I've admired Tom's work for a very long time, and his paintings truly are masterful and must really be seen in person to be fully appreciated. It was a real treat to spend some time with him in Florence, surrounded by his beautiful paintings, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello, Tom. Hi. <laughs> I am so thrilled to be sitting here in Florence at the at your studio, the uh, Florence Academy of Arts, um, just surrounded by incredible paintings. There's students outside, and this is somewhere that I've always wanted to walk through, let alone study at, so I'm thrilled to be here and to ask you a bunch of questions. Thanks for doing this. Not at all. Good. No. I'd love to just start off with, with your personal background. How did you come to art and painting? I, mean, I guess I, I grew up in a house where there were, like most of the walls were covered with pictures and if they weren't, they had books on them. And so, you know, both my parents are like, completely normal professional people who, who worked and you know, did like, you know, what you might call a normal job, I guess. Right. But they, you know, my mother would take me and my brother to go and see a painting in the National Gallery not regularly, so I think more than one. If you're five years old, you just get bored and you start screaming. Right. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there was always, I guess, interesting music playing at home. My mother was really into kind of the 60s song, sort of singer-songwriter stuff. So, And then dad, it was always sort of Bach or Beethoven. But, you know, depending on where you were in the house, there was a kind of a different vibe going right. on. And you know, I've got a younger brother. He's two years younger than me. But actually, I've always had a slightly kind of only child mentality. I've always loved my own company. Mm -hmm. um, and I love drawing as a as a child. I sort of went through, I guess, a, weird, a phase that a lot of boys do where I wanted to play cricket. That's not going to translate everywhere in the world, but I wanted to play cricket for England. Sure. And then quickly realized, I think by the age of about 13, that I, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And drawing kind of picked up again. Right. And I was, the school I was at at the time in the UK, um, it was one of these traditional boarding schools. I think people think maybe a very um, sort of old fashioned and restricted, but actually they, they were very supportive of the arts and they, um, they had a house in Florence that used to belong to the British poet Robert Browning and oh. his wife Elizabeth Barrett Browning. They ran away here. And I was taught by this amazing man called Michael Meredith, who was an English teacher, and along with John Booth, who was the art teacher, they both really encouraged me and both arranged sort of trips to Italy to come and stay at the house and to come and work in Florence and to see this environment. So incredible. Um, I, mean, I haven't got any Italian blood, but the um, the love of the country is in my blood. Sure. If that makes sense. <laughs> I feel the same way. Yes. I probably have mentioned Florence in every episode I've done of this <laughs> podcast so far. And did you ultimately end up studying here at the Florence Academy? I, when I first came to Florence, I studied with uh, a painter called Charles Cecil. And about 30 something years ago now, my, my current boss, Daniel Graves, who started the Florence Academy, and Charles Cecil ran a school together. Um, and then they went their separate ways and Charles ran a studio which takes his own name and Daniel started the Florence Academy of Art. So I originally studied, I did a year with Charles Cecil. Then I went to Scotland and did a history of art degree oh. um, and got an MA from a place called St Andrews University. But I knew I wanted to be a painter the whole time. I, looking at paintings for, for four years was wonderful, but there was always this frustration of not doing it. And, and I found that the way that some art historians even spoke about art was frustrating too. It was as if they'd sort of forgotten that the object even existed. It was, um, <laughs> it was everything else. I think that for some approaches, it's that's fantastic. But for me, it was always about the painting itself. Right. Um, and so I just couldn't wait to come back here. And so I did a few more years with Charles, and I've been at the Florence Academy now for about six years. Oh wow! Ah, incredible. Teaching here, um, and so I teach one day a week, and then the rest of the time I'm free to pursue my own practice, whether that's here in Florence or quite a lot of time in London as well. I really enjoy being by myself in, in my studio, but the, the teaching, both the contact with the students and the contact with, with colleagues is also so useful for you know, renewing your energy, renewing interest, even sort of the competitive juices that perhaps <laughs> artists try to pretend Absolutely. don't exist as well. <laughs> yeah, I just saw this amazing Caravaggio exhibit at mm. the... Um, oh, gosh. At the Uffizi or...? No, uh, it was actually in Rome. Gosh, what is... It? starts with a B. Borghese? No. Barberini? Yes. Yeah. The Barberini. It had a lot of his 
contemporaries as well. Oh, and yep. a lot of the descriptions were about their feuds and yeah. how they were enemies. And I was just like, amazing. This is like this rock star painter. Like <laughs> he was a difficult man. <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah. So when you, when you first started studying, I'd love to ask you about the, the methods that are taught sure. here, because I think, I think they're really interesting. And what you were saying mm -hmm. when we were sort of walking around the tour, yeah. I thought would be really interesting for people to hear. Sure. I mean, I think, um, I suppose there are two strands to what we talked about earlier. I want to I pick up again. Mm -hmm. And the first, and I don't want it, and it can easily sound defensive, but I, I hope it doesn't come across too much that way, that from the outside or for people who haven't spent a lot of time in these environments or um, people can think that this type of training so based on traditional methods is restrictive. But actually, this is the training to think of four artists at the end of the 19th century who, who were trained this way. Let's say Degas, Sargent, Picasso, and Matisse. I think you know, their work is relatively well-known, um, very well-known in a couple of those cases. Sure. But actually, they were all trained the same way. But you know, the, the work you see as mature artists could not be more different or more reflective of the life they were leading, the passions that they had, the, their voice, their, their vision. Sure. And so our hope as teachers here very much is that, that while people are here, they adhere to a certain set of principles and they follow the guidance of their teachers. But it's... Um, we would hope that it does not impose limits on what you are going to do afterwards, very much the reverse, actually. It gives you a set of core skills, and a, you know, when you need it, a sense of control um, that allow you to express your vision rather than be frustrated that you can't. Right. Um, that makes perfect sense. And so the curriculum that we teach, so the, the techniques are very much based on the types of, um, the type of formation that artists would have gone through in Paris in the 19th century. Wow. Um, so it's very much based on the figure, whether you're um, painting, um, painting or drawing or sculpting as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a full-time sculpture program here, which was started by a friend called Rob Bodum, and now a guy called Mitch Shea, who's an American sculptor, has taken over that. Um, and they produce you know, amazing work every year. And right. Rob developed and sort of turned the drawing program he had into something that really works for, for sculptors as well. But it's, it's based on the human figure. Okay. So every student spends th at least three hours a day, and in some cases, five hours a day, drawing from the figure. Some of these drawings are very quick. Um, but a lot of them actually take a long, a long time, possibly longer than they might have done before. But we're really trying to, you know, communicate and get across things about, you know, anatomy and the understanding of light. Sure. And that takes time. Actually, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, it definitely is. It's a train your eye. Just speaking from the little experience yeah. I have drawing and painting, I'm not anywhere near where I would like to be. But th the training to simplify form and to see shadow and simplify yeah. that is an extraordinary skill to develop. Yeah. Actually, I was, I was looking at your photos online earlier, so, um, and I, I can tell even from looking at the photos that your fascination with, with light and using light to explain the textures of everyday life, of, you know, and light's a, light's a symbol as well. So I think, um, you know, the, again, the types of skills and the types of issues our students are dealing with absolutely overlap into other creative areas, whether it's photography, film, fashion, you know, right. all sorts of things. So again, we, we, we really hope it's a... Um, that when these things are understood, it's a, it's a, it's a liberation rather than a, a straitjacket, even if at times you feel people are really sort of punching against the, <laughs> the bag while they're here. Right. And so where do you start people off? Like, let's say mm -hmm. day one or week one, month sure. one, what's, where do you like to people, where do you like to start them with mm -hmm. thinking? So the first thing we teach them to do is to just to observe a really simple flat shape. Um, we sometimes call it the envelope shape or and there are probably other terms used too. Um, I have someone called Simona Dolce who's been teaching here since the school, more or less since the school started. Um, and she's also linked to that Florentine tradition of, she's, a, um, she's become a Florentine, I guess, um, that Florentine tradition of drawing as well. And I think the, that in, in Italian, the word for drawing is also the word for design, disegno. And so that double meaning, I mean, you're here for, for pity as well. And this idea of you're not just copying a shape, but actually you're trying to understand it and hone it into something that is beautiful and hopefully even means something. Right as well. And so that first exercise is about just observing a simple shape and yeah, to some extent trying to copy it and to get it, you know, to really understand it, the parameters of that shape and what that might mean. And then gradually you begin to work through, um, you know, this idea of light. So developing a shadow shape as you, as you just mentioned mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then once you understand the light and the shadow area, thinking about how the tones, the half tones can also be used to explain form and connect one side of an object to the other. So you start making something where you feel, where you don't just say it, it looks like, but you also feel the thereness of something as well, which I think is, um, I think one of the things that separates drawing from photography, in photography are pixels, and actually the mark you can make 
as a draftsman has more variety perhaps than the pixel. Right. Um, I love that that word thereness. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think brings that out of a drawing? I think that the thereness, to some extent, is about. I mean, I, I think there's something like weight, which is a very physical thing, mm-hmm. um, but it's also about connecting with the essence of something, which maybe is a more spiritual thing as well. So when you <laughs> Uh, I think it was one of my uh, one of the other guys I teach with, Ramiro, once said that you know when when I when I see a head in a painting, I want to believe that if you were to kind of get a, a, a sword out and cut off it off at the neck, it would fall, um, not in a horrific sense, but in a sense that something should have a sort of a satisfying sense of weight. Sure. Um, and that sense of thereness, to some extent, is about is about creating that thing of if you can believe that something is there, maybe your psychological interaction with it becomes a little more immediate and powerful, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to that end, as well, with the portrait work here, we tend to gear towards working on the life-size scale. Because mm-hmm. I think, again, when you meet something that is life-size, you have a slightly different interaction with it. You know, if something's very small, um, you're always aware of that change. If something's way over life-size, um, and there was a big fashion a few years ago for these sort of way over life-size heads where you see every pore on the skin. Right. And I don't know, I, I, can, I can admire the patience and the, the craft, but there's something removed from that in terms of our everyday experience. It becomes almost surreal right. um, and horrific, even. Whereas I, you know, as I'm looking at you now, I'm, you know, I'm looking at your eyes and your, you know, your beard and your mouth a little out of focus. But I'm still, I can still understand the inflections of your face, or I, I hope I can. I think I can. <laughs> I delude myself that I can, um, in terms of seeing your expression and what you might be thinking or right. feeling. I even feel like within photography, the cameras have become so full of megapixels that yeah. it almost distorts reality mm-hmm. into some sort of weird hyper reality <laughs> yeah I, mean, I think probably my favorite portrait photographer um not that original but is irving penn i mean i love the scale of the images i love his work and again it's although it's a photograph actually a lot of it seems to be done by implication rather than explicit statement and i think that's so effective because again it recalls on you and your imagination to to complete the narrative and to complete the image yeah and i tried for a while to, I, I love the way he uses background back backgrounds you know that sort of narrow, very narrow kind of v-shape right um, thing he sets people and i tried i experimented a bit with painting and it just doesn't work it's one of those things where you know the photograph i don't want to say rules or laws but it's one of those things that works so beautifully in photography and it just looked so bizarre <laughs> um and just weird and stupid in painting interesting yeah um that was one of those sort of when I mean, literally in his case you know it's, it's a blind alleyway <laughs> right. a dead end and he used that dead end i think to such brilliant um effect and I couldn't find a way to make it work in painting. Right. Um, I'm not sure that's my failing or just the innate fact that, and we touched on this before, that maybe painting and photography sort of inhabit slightly separate worlds. And the, you know, I guess, the, I mean, the early days of, of landscape photography, they tried to imitate kind of Claude Lorraine and those things, and it somehow didn't quite do what photography can do. Right. And I think now there's painters still haven't quite escaped from the photograph. You know, we. There's too often you know, the desire to make something look like a photo or the praise it looks like a photo. And you know, when, I, when I look at a Rembrandt or a Velasquez or if you're here in Florence, a, a Michelangelo or a Masaccio or a Giotto, it has nothing to do with photography. And I think it's all the more beautiful for it. Right. Um, no, I would absolutely agree. I think, I mean, you mentioned Sargent earlier for me. He yeah. is, as I'm sure many, I just, I'm in awe of his work, yeah. especially when you look at it up close and three brushstrokes describe something yeah. that's like, and then you step back and you're like, that's the entire hand is in yeah. three brushstrokes. What? <laughs> like, yeah. And the detail is none. There's no yeah. detail, but it says everything. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's odd. I mean, you know, people, there are, whenever there's a talk of sort of, you know, who were the great draftsmen at the end of the 19th century and, you know, um, quite rightly, people like people talk about, talk about Degas, but I think Sargent actually can hold his own mm-hmm. in that company. And when when you look at these huge, as you say, these huge strokes that seem to be, I mean, abstract's not the right word, but you know, these kind of attacks on the canvas, but actually every time the brush changes direction, it means something. Right. You know, it's implying a knuckle or a, a change in angle. And so it seems almost thoughtless. I mean, there are accounts of him when he's painting the edge of a table, you know, trying to get the highlight in the table. He did it 40 times. Wow. <laughs> um, and he, he wanted it to look, that was the Oscar Wilde thing, the artful impression of artlessness. Right, um, <laughs> exactly. So I'd love to dive into the way you think and the way you mm-hmm. see and get into some of your personal work. When you first started off, did you have a direction in mind or what was sort of appealing to you the most about painting? Or sure. I mean, I think the I've always loved the human face as a subject. The thing that gives me uh, confidence that it's valid as subject matter is that, you know, I think, I think it's in the most positive sense timeless and that, you know, probably the first thing we see when we're born, when our eyes open, it might be our mother's face. 
um, or you know, a nurse or some, you know, someone around us. And then probably one of the last things we see before we die is probably going to be, again, hopefully for um, you know, the face again of someone we love. And our whole life we get so used to looking at faces and trying to interpret little changes in you know, millimetric changes in the corner of an eye, the, you know, the flare of a nostril or whatever else. Sure. And we try to understand our place in the world or other people's journey and their story through that. Um, and so although uh, you know, it, the style I use isn't particularly modern, it's not self-consciously old, but it's just you know, I, I paint the way I see the world and I paint for the most part the things I, I want to paint. I mean, there's always you know, there's the pressure of having to make a living and um, pay for rent and we're here in the city with wonderful food and you want to go out for dinner every now and then and sure. you know, go, and, you know, go and see you know, exhibitions in Rome or Venice and whatever. But for the so that you know, occasionally when you're working on commission doing things that initially you think you wouldn't have wanted to do, but actually quite often in the end, uh, again just that challenge of saying, here's another person. How do I how do I get it? How do I get at them? In the end, that challenge takes over and, is, and makes even projects that you're a little skeptical about at the beginning, kind of so much. Once you once you connect to that human thing and you have a sense of okay, I've got an idea of you and what I or at least the sense of you that I want to try and get down. Right. That sort of skepticism or that. Um, that sense of compromise actually kind of nearly always evaporates. Right. <laughs> That's true. Um, no, I mean, uh, just sitting surrounded by your work here in yeah. the studio, every time I see one of your paintings, I, I know it's distinctly yours, even though it's within a, mm -hmm. a maybe one could say, how would you classify your work? Was, no, it's, was really, it's, it's probably, I think it's, um, it's within a tradition. Within, the, within a tradition, but... But there are the deviations that I know it's yours. Mm -hmm. Was that something that naturally evolved, or I, I hope so. Was that a conscious um, choice? I think there are the worst paintings I've done, or the ones I'm always in the end. You might like, I might like them for a month or two, and then you see them in six months' time, um, and you just can't do anything but destroy them. Are the ones where you self-consciously <laughs> try to do something else, whereas the ones where you're responding to. And one of the things my boss once said, Daniel said, he said. Um, no one else is going to make the paintings you want to make, so you've got to make them. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a pretty healthy impulse or a voice to have somewhere in your head. Right. Because in the end, if you really want to make it, and you, and this is what you feel honestly in that moment has to be set down, it, to me it doesn't really matter what style you work in or even actually what the subject is. At least it has some sort of integrity. Right. Um, you know, people can question whether you've done it well, whether you've communicated effectively, but the integrity of responding to that voice is something that matters to me. Yeah. What's your process of approaching a painting? I think, I mean, that changes every time. Sometimes it's, I, I don't like the word instincts. I think that's kind of blinking, belching and everything else. <laughs> right. But I think, you know, through doing things over and over again, you're that point where intuition almost becomes instinct. So some things you literally sort of see something, which is, let's say, a passing, a fleeting, like a fleeting moment. In, you know, let's say in a land, you could be outside and you're walking through the landscape and suddenly you just get a feeling for the way the hills sit together. Mm -hmm. you've, you've got to draw it. Right. Other times, I've got a commission I've just started the preliminary stages on now. It's this sort of rem actually very like remarkable young man who's only 25 who currently is in the Far East. And he sent me a whole load of books on the German philosopher Schopenhauer. And there's this episode in Schopenhauer's life where he pushed a seamstress down the stairs. He was so furious with the noise she made outside his um, apartment. <laughs> he couldn't take it anymore. And he shoved her down the stairs and she was not crippled but severely injured and he had to pay her money um, every year until she died and he felt no remorse for this but he was annoyed wow. that the effect it had on him and my <laughs> friend said paint that <laughs> and so i'm in the process of deciding you know do you paint the, the the moment before he pushed her when he was thinking about it do you paint the act of doing it or do you paint the aftermath right and so i'm working through a series of you know quite kind of messy drawings to try and sort of arrange it a series of shapes and tones which i feel yeah okay this could be the this is the moment i can identify with psychologically and this is the moment i think will probably visually aesthetically make the most powerful painting so there are some which are very immediate and some which come as a result of a lot of time and a lot of thought yeah no as as we were talking beforehand with within a painting you have to tell the whole story within one image yeah. and therein lies a massive challenge <laughs> yeah do you do you always approach story first or do you approach how you are viscer sure. viscerally responding to something um, yeah again I, I don't I, I don't think I have a set method for that gotcha. but I, you know there are other times where and this is probably one of those halfway houses so there's there's the immediate fleeting thing which probably has more to do with when I paint outside where you just sort of think 
the sun which is moving just makes a pattern on buildings or on trees or on whatever and just in a, almost just in a purely aesthetic sense that abstract arrangement grasps you and makes you feel that this is the way that this particular scene has to be right. depicted then there's the really drawn out one other times you're out in the city and you see a face in the street in a bar or whatever and you realize that there's a painting I mean, there's always a painting, I think, in every face. Um, but some people really grab you immediately. Yeah. And then you have to, um, you know, you bring them here, you put them under a different light condition, and again, and then it might change again. Right. So it's, it's, I think it's a mix of the, you know, the immediate and then the, the cerebral, if that makes sense. And some no, projects are, some projects are, are much more towards the immediate and some via the other way, but you've got that whole fuzzy gray area in between. Right. Um, the process of making is always quite similar in that you sort of, you do a kind of you often often a sort of let's say a, a sort of a study in line just to find the shapes and then something either in a kind of charcoal or a very quick painting just to find the the color and the tonal arrangements mm -hmm. and those kind of sit by you when you're working right um which and it's often though it's not so much at the beginning there's a help it's almost at the end so when you've had all this time and all this work and often you put in all these things which are actually so secondary and peripheral to the idea and it's getting back to that essential thing right at the end that really reconnects you with the impulse that you had at the start i think yeah. that's that's the tough thing. The photograph is that wonderful thing of the immediacy. Sure. And with painting, you have the advantage of time, but it can also be a disadvantage. Right. To it's interesting for me personally, when I draw, I, I feel like my my two to five minute drawings are much more expressive. Yeah. The more time I have, the more I take the yeah. energy out of it. <laughs> um, but I feel like that's, that's a ch I mean, just sitting here around your work, you, it's, you maintain that. Not always. I mean, I, there are a lot of thrown up paintings that have been thrown out as well. <laughs> um, the success rate is definitely kind of lower than I'd, I'd like it to be. Um, I, I, actually, and we talk about this with the students quite a lot because they say, oh, I, I, I overwork something. And actually the painters I'm in awe of are the ones that really can, let's say, push something for a long time and to a high degree of finish while keeping that energy. And when you, you know, one of the most sort of depressing exercises is to take a photograph of your work and put it next to sort of one of the people you regard as gods or demigods and you realize how far you have to go in that respect. That <laughs> right. um, you know, my, in my head, I've got this thing of, if I was good enough, I couldn't overwork anything. Right. You know, the underlying yeah. design would be so strong and my technique would be good enough that actually everything I did, if I was good enough, could only make it better. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I definitely haven't reached that point. Right. <laughs> I'm a lot, I mean, that's a, that's a sort of, sort of the Mount, that's the Mount Olympus. Right. I'm curious. So we were looking at some of the the drawing stages that you take mm. students through. That was the traditional academic yeah. training. How do you feel like your work has maybe used that as a launch pad? Was there a master that you particularly admired, or was there a route that you jumped off from? I guess when, even when I was um, probably sort of 15 or 16, and really decided that I wanted to, for sure, wanted to be a painter, and actually at the same moment be a painter and try and live in Italy and doing it. I mean, the three painters then that I. I still regard as, for me, the ones that I think about most um, were Titian, Rembrandt, and Velasquez. Mm -hmm. And they're still now the ones, you know, possibly for different reasons, the ones I look to now. I can remember seeing when I was like 17, when I was 17, so it was 1999, there was an exhibition of Rembrandt self-portraits at the National Gallery in London. Mm -hmm. And I just remember walking around the room thinking that, and this sounds like a, makes it sound like a psycho, but I remember <laughs> thinking the, the guy in these paintings is more interesting than everyone else in the room. <laughs> and I think, you know, I want to know, like, how do you do that? You know, it, it wasn't just the color, it was, you know, the, expressive, the expressivity of it, the, the, the sort of the manual dexterity, yeah. the, just the sheer sense that you were looking at, not so much a living person, because his work is not, let's say, sort of, is not photographic at all, but you got the feeling that there was a, a living and real spirit in something that would be made in 1650. Right. And that, that ability to sort of travel through time and space and identify with another person is something I still find fascinating, actually. Completely, yeah. Um, and you, know, you might gain insights into how he did it. I don't think you can quite understand the impulse of why he did it. Right. Um, you'd like, you might like to think you can, but that thing of just trying to create something which has, although it's static, you know, has, a, has a pulse. I mean, you're talking about your own teacher saying, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of you know, creating a narrative or going, creating a moment you know, just giving, yeah, you, what you, I guess what I'm trying to do is give something just, even if it's only the suggestion of it, a pulse. Right, right, <laughs> completely. What was it in uh, Titian's work that you were responding to? I mean, he, he, it was the, to begin with, it was just actually the, there's one in London, it's the, it's kind of a Bacchanal scene. Mm. And it was actually just the beauty of the color. 
oh, and wow. these, these deep, rich, not necessarily like the pastel colors of the Impressionists, but the these colors that are so deep and so rich. And it was almost like in every painting, he like he made his own world. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't quite the world of the everyday. It was, you know, you recognize it as a human, you recognize it as a, as a silk jacket or a tiger or a landscape. Right. But it was a, it was like a world that was just sort of slightly removed, slightly out of touch from where you were, but it's so fascinating. I, would, I guess the difference between like a shopping list and a poem. Right. Um, <laughs> and, That's a great, I love that analogy. <laughs> and I still find it frustrating. I still feel at times really blocked in the, the shopping list mm. area. But again, it didn't feel like self-consciously aggrandized. It was just the simple fact that it just felt this was his world. It felt completely natural. Right. And you were just transported to this, yeah, to this place of just such, a, it's, I think it's a word that can be overused or can get corny, but this world of just incredible beauty. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I think it's, it, maybe it's less unfashionable than it was, but I think the word beauty definitely had a, as much a negative connotation at times in the last 30 years. Right. Um, I mean, I, one of the things I find, gives me a little bit sort of more hope now is that for the people who taught me when they were first training as artists you know you were, you were told that you were basically a fascist if you were a representational painter it was so not just uncool but actually you know really frowned upon as a, in, in a political sense as oh, well yeah, for sure. um, but actually that generation of critics we all tend to rebel against our parents so that generation of critics their students rebelled and they're now interested in you know they're at the sergeants are back in the national gallery mm-hmm. you know even I, mean, I don't particularly love his work but the bougaros are back and all these people and so there's this at least renewed interest in saying well, we can't just dismiss it completely it, you know it must have something to say and let's let's listen to it yeah whereas for a while it was just completely rejected out of sight as something that was um you know really actually unsavory and mm-hmm. you know i i um, we mentioned this on the way around. I don't love the 19th century. I'm much more interested in the 17th century and even earlier, and probably why we were in Florence. But I think the 19th century can be a really um, interesting prism, a way to kind of bounce you and deflect you back into a into a deeper past. Right. Yeah, I loved one of the the things, if you wouldn't mind going into this too, that we were talking about when we were mm. walking around the school, how there were no actual sort of written down guidelines for yeah, artists sure. until the 19th century, yeah. really, right? Yeah, I, I, you, mentioned, you mentioned this too. I mean, you're... Um, the idea that before it was very much based on, you know, the master would have his atelier or his group of pupils and they would, um, you know, he would he would train them. They would do, let's say, quite mundane manual tasks like grinding paint and cleaning the studio and everything else. But they would also actually be trained up to assist him with major paintings. Um, I think now we expect the painter, uh, when, we, when people buy a painting, for the most part, they expect you to have done it. You know? Right. You know, actually, a lot, of, a lot of artists now sort of, you know, Damien Hurst and Jeff Koons employ large numbers of assistants to do large amounts of the technical work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a bit of a difference in that, let's say Rubens in his studio had a young Van Dyke um, who was brilliant at painting heads and drapery and other things. But when Rubens instructed Van Dyke, Rubens could paint a head. Right. <laughs> and I think some, some of the contemporary practice now, artists are using people to do things, not just the other person can, can do better or really well, but actually they don't know how to do themselves. Right. And so how can you critique someone's work or critique it with the same with an appropriate level of understanding if you can't do that yourself right um, I think that's one of the big differences between the renaissance or the baroque period and today is that for the most part artists were brought in to do things which there was a deeper understanding or a, a shared understanding of how this could be done right um, you know, you're in, like in the, there's a sort of you know, bizarre period in English history where every sort of um, girl who was you know, fortunate enough to be born into a relatively wealthy house was taught how to draw and paint and when you go around country houses in England, you see these watercolors done by someone's great, 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 great grandmother. <laughs> and they're really good. I mean, right. technically, they're, they're not the most interesting things, but there's a technical level that is staggering today that you know, a lot of teachers, you know, I look at it and go, wow, I'd actually, I don't know if I could do that. I don't wow. know if I want to, but I don't know if I could, even if I did want to. Right. And so there was a level of just sort of common understanding of how to make certain things that you know, perhaps we don't have. Yeah. Um, you know, we can make an iPad and we can do all sorts of, you know, we can, if you go to the doctor, it's probably a huge improvement. <laughs> so I, do, I don't regret being born today. I'm so happy to be alive now, but it's interesting what, what we sacrifice to get where we are. Right. Speaking of, of the technical and, and your teaching, do you find that there's certain um, either traps or certain problems that students mm-hmm. have that are sort of across the board? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things I've got, I've got a couple of friends that teach um, tennis and rugby in the UK. And one thing we've all noticed is as people write less in their mm. formation, just right. manual dexterity has actually decreased a little bit. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. And in rugby, it's expressed in the way that sort of 
the ball the ball can be sort of spun when it's being passed tennis just the the feeling between the racket and the hand sure I mean there's a you know people play on the PlayStation a lot and they're very quick on the you know moving around an iPad but it's not quite the same thing as um, writing an H or a D over and over again between lines right that's right. Um, it's a different type of muscle movement and actually there is a slight sense that maybe you know we're reaching a point where people just aren't quite used to manipulating very delicately that type of tool I mean I think the the iPad now the pencil is beginning to do certain things again but again there's a very different text like texture based relationship between the the screen and the pencil and then the way that a brush works and everything else but I'm, I'm really interested in that technology actually I've just sort of upgraded some of oh, that yeah. stuff to to get into it. I'm I'm intrigued by the possibilities even though at the moment I I feel like someone's granddad playing with the TV <laughs> remote control at Christmas right. so that that manual dexterity thing and I think also going back to this idea of the atelier when um when students were trained before a lot of the time if you're a child in let's say 1700 for the most part you would learn to draw by copying etchings and engravings mm-hmm. whereas now you almost certainly copy photographs and again so before you'd copy a line that described form right and and so your your drawing and your the way your hand was being trained to move was still based around the idea of expressing or translating a three-dimensional object onto a two-dimensional surface right whereas the the pixel idea again it's this repetitive sort of dot or square and so again one of the things we have to really try and do is not um change people but get them to maybe see that there are different ways to express and maybe more vivid ways to express three and more varied ways to express three-dimensionality right and again once those tools can be understood and the pot the breadth and possibility of those tools you hope people will see that actually this is a better way or a richer way for me to express me sure rather than a mechanical way yeah so it's i think that thing of but actually at the root of it is still manual dexterity i think that's one of our that's one of our biggest challenges right yeah <laughs> that's that's so um, interesting because yeah I, I would not have thought that but that makes total sense I, mean, I, I keep meaning to, I've got a, um, a friend here in Florence who makes really beautiful shoes and she started taking on apprentices. It's one of the things I actually keep meaning to talk to her every time I see her and I, every time I, we end up talking about something else that right. I forget. <laughs> I, think, I mean, because you know, I've, I've been listening to your other podcasts, I think one of the, the things that I really like that you concentrate on is this idea of sort of makers and people who are doing things with their, mm-hmm. their hands. And I think one of the great things about being in Florence is just the concentration of people who are, who are making things with their hands. I love that about Florence. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, I'm staying on the Alter Arno, and it's just yeah. incredible to walk by all the. There's cobbler shops and a man making yeah. frames this morning. I saw and yeah, yeah. Ah, love it. I mean, I, I, um, you might have to edit this for that later, but I'm actually, I, I was thinking about going off this. I'm having a, the, a frame made for a paint for a portrait I've just done oh. um, <laughs> with these people, and they've made frames for you know the Uffizi, the the Louvre, the Met. Ah, incredible. And the level of just knowledge and understanding that these people have about how to make something from beginning to end you know there are no machine molds in the process at all everything all the wood is carved by hand then right. it's gessoed and just getting clients to understand the the time this takes that has to be factored in is actually one of the biggest battles <laughs> on that but it's one, of sure. the, it's one of the joys of living here but sometimes you know the outside world is living at such a pace that that the sort of the slowness of what you come to regard as normal here doesn't quite chime with right. um, people <laughs> everywhere else. I mean, being here in Florence is just absolutely inspiring to me. And I would imagine, do you have your students do a lot of master copies in the various yeah. museums? Yeah. How do you advise them to study the masters? Sure. It, I mean, it, it follows, I guess, a little bit the the curriculum. So at the beginning, they're, they're actually sort of given things to copy. Okay. And then gradually as the program proceeds, there's more and more choice in how you set things up, what you come to paint, and by the end, you're, it's almost like doing the splits very slowly. So you sort of, you, you start with both feet very much in the program, and by the end, you know, you're sort of that, that, that left foot or that right foot is getting further and further away into, very much into your own territory and your right. own world. Yeah. And that applies to the, the copies as well. Although again, we can, you know, you can look at a student's work. At the end of every trimester, we sit down with each student individually for about 25 minutes and just look at what they've done over the last 11 weeks. And quite often, you, you you might identify trends or patterns in their work. And so actually, looking at this artist could be a really useful antidote, or a really this could set you off in a whole range of possibilities and avenues. So you know, if if someone's let's say sort of polishing everything, making everything too neat, you might get them to look at someone who's using paint in a really expressive and in, an unusual way, just to get them to think about color combinations and how the brush might be used. Other times, it might be the reverse, just saying, okay, maybe a little bit more control would be helpful here. And it's just. Um, we're not trying to turn anyone into something else, but just to say, you know, what about another way? Right. Yeah. Um, Do you advise students to keep sketchbooks as well? Yeah. yeah. Um, and are those with specific intentions? No. No. And actually, again, one of the things we're really starting to push now is that um, as students move through the school, 
insisting that they start bringing things that they've done outside. Mm. So it's too easy if, if we're here giving people projects all the time, but you need to begin to get into the habit of starting things by yourself. Of, right. you know, where does the impetus to make something come from? And if, it's, if you've just been given exercise all the time, you can leave and suddenly it's like, oh my God, I've got to, what, help? I don't know what, <laughs> I don't want to do anymore. Right. Um, and most, almost sort of, you know, 99.9%, that's already there. Every now and then people take a little bit of help or encouragement. Also, it can be, like, it can be quite intimidating to show something that's really personal. Yeah, that's um, very true. <laughs> and, you know, especially when you're acquiring skills and you don't quite feel that maybe you can say what you want to say. Right. Um, I think that can be a particularly kind of delicate and sensitive moment. Yeah. So, um, Are there any uh, specific paintings within Florence that you send students to? I mean, actually, one we go back, we, actually, we end up talking about all over and over again. And it's, it's actually very close to, I live in the Oltrano as well, mm. around the corner from where I live. And there's, a, there's an altarpiece by Pontormo oh. of the deposition. And it's a really unusual painting. I've, I've, even the title is a little shaky because it's, there are these sort of episodes in the, the end of Christ's life. That it's called the Passion Cycle. So there are these specific moments. And each one is linked to quite a relatively rigid like, you know, set of iconography in terms of what should be in the picture and so on. And the strange thing about this Pontomo is that it kind of exists outside that. So, you know, there's the, the deposition, in which case, in theory, you're meant to kind of see the cross, mm -hmm. but there's no cross in this painting. Um, <laughs> then there's the Pietà, which is very much Christ on Mary's lap, but he's not in Mary's lap. Or then there's the entombment, but you're meant to see the tomb, and there's no evidence of a tomb. And so this painting, which also, if you when you look at the feet or you try to analyze the sense of how these figures are arranged in space, also doesn't make any sense. So it exists to some extent outside time, outside the, the conventional order of the passion cycle, and exists outside space. Wow. And it has this very unusual color scheme. There are almost no shadows. Um, Interesting. But there, it has this incredibly beautiful um, like linear rhythm that runs through it. Um, you know, the hands are so graceful, the, the way that the art, just the direction of sight between the different figures moves around as well. So there are explicit lines and then oh. there are imp implicit lines. Interesting. Um, and it's such a beautifully sort of weird and complex painting. Yeah. Um, the dream I've always had is to see it under candlelight because you either see it in darkness or you put the euro into the little box and it's lit up so brightly like the like a sort of a, the light in a prison courtyard right. kind of thing. <laughs> and I suspect that it would, it would have been made to some extent to be seen under candlelight. If you think that, you know, when Pontorma was making this in 1525, there were no electric lights. Right, completely. And in... You know, these kind of rigid lines, if you saw it with the candlelight, which would sort of flicker and move, this already slightly surreal painting, I think, would have taken on an even kind of trippier and oh, crazier and more intense I need to atmosphere. Go, where is this one? I need to go see this. So it's it's a really intriguing little church. It's right by the Ponte Vecchio on okay. the south side. And it's in a little square called Santa Felicita, in a church called Santa Felicita. Um, and the unusual thing is if you walk into the church and turn around and look up, the Vasari Corridor, which is a secret corridor that the Medici built right. to take them from the Palazzo Vecchio and the Uffizi, which is sort of the offices, to the Palazzo Pitti where they lived, so they wouldn't have to walk in the street right. with everyone else. <laughs> and they even kicked out on the Ponte Vecchio, where all the, the famous old bridge used to have all these butcher's shops, but they didn't like the smell, so they kicked them out, and right. the gold cellars are still there today. Yeah. And the passageway runs through the church. Oh, and so they built a special little balcony where um, you can look up and you can sort of see this balcony, which is where the Medici would stop and pray if they were walking through the church. <laughs> Incredible. I must have walked by it a million times. Yeah. I'll have to get No, it's always closed. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a, there's a Masaccio somewhere on the yeah. outer too, right? That's worth in checking. In Santa Maria del Carmine. Del Carmine, okay. Um, so it's the Brancacci Chapel, but it's in the, and the entrance is just to the side of the church. And that's, yeah, that's it's probably the most important fresco cycle in, in Florence. Oh, okay. I'll definitely have to check that one out. Like Michelangelo apparently or allegedly broke his nose in an argument um, <laughs> about, he was, you know, he was arguing with a friend about the, the paintings. And this might be apocryphal, but all good stories are <laughs> to sure. an extent. Um, nice. And so, yeah, that's, that's it's, yeah, just a block away from Santa Spirito. Very cool. Do you, have, do you have a favorite piece in Florence or in the Uffizi that you go back um, to besides the one you just mentioned? A piece that's always interested me. So when I when I was studying um, the first school I went to here at, with Charles Cecil, there was a painting by Titian. It was a portrait of one of his of his closest friends, a man called Pietro Aretino, mm. who used who was a polemicist. He wrote all these like incredibly kind of rude and sexy poems that got banned by the Vatican. And Titian did this beautiful portrait of him that's in the Palazzo Pitti. And I used to have a studio kind of across town, um, sort of just north of the centre. And I just moved in, and one day there was like kind of a knock at the door, and this guy comes in. He says, "Oh, um, do you want to come and we've got these lights? We don't need them. Do you want to come and have a look?" 
um, I, I didn't need a light, but I just sort of, I was intrigued. So I thought, <laughs> okay, this guy seems you know, friendly enough. Right. And I walked in and this painting was at the end of a corridor. And I was like, wow, that's a really good copy of the, the Titian. He's like, no, no, it's the real thing. <laughs> um, and it was out of its frame, just sitting on an easel as it would do in a painter's studio. Oh my God. Um, I said, can I look at it? And he said, yeah, of course you can touch it if you want, you know, lift it up. Um, Really? He's like, if you, he said, if you really want, you can kiss it. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Um, and again, you know, that, that's, and I, you know, I went back sort of every couple of weeks to, to see the restoration, to see this painting kind of come to life again, you know, the dirt being taken off and yeah. the, you know, the subtlety, the color, and actually just the sense of life wow. being restored oh. to us. That's, <laughs> that's one of those memories actually that will stay with me for forever. Right. Oh, that's incredible. Um, so I'm, I'm also curious, do you have any sort of daily art routine that you follow or does it depend yeah. on which piece you're working on? I, mean, I try to get to the studio every morning sort of between 8 and 8.30 and I start working at 9 but that sort of time before I have to sort of prepare materials but actually I, as I'm getting older, I don't know what it is, but I, I just meditate for 20 minutes every mm -hmm. day as well. Yeah. It can take a very kind of formal or like let's say very separate sort of shut-eyed thing or it can actually just be sort of sitting on the floor on a chair just sort of partly contemplating the painting, partly not, but just trying to kind of shut everything else right. out. And so I sort of work between sort of roughly nine to 12 and then take a, in the winter a very short period of time off and get back before the, the light. So I, I work almost exclusively with natural light. I think the, the way light lifts off or interacts particularly with flesh under natural light is just so beautiful. Absolutely, um, yeah. And the subtlety of the shadow edge under natural light is I think the, the sort of the LED lights are getting better and better and better, mm -hmm. but they still don't quite have that lovely subtle softness that, that natural light gives. And so I tend to work with daylight. In the, in the summer, you can have a bit more time off or you can do a third project or whatever else, but I find actually six hours of really intense concentration. I'm pretty cooked by right. the end of that. <laughs> and so I, I, I tend to divide the day up into two really intense working periods. And then other times might be, I help to give a few art history lectures here at the school. So I might be writing in for a bit of that and you know, researching or you know, just drawing a little bit. I, try to draw for kind of half an hour every day if I can. Um, is that always something different? Yeah, I mean, it can be something very casual, like I just found around in the studio, even just my hand or something like that. Yeah. Um, other times I've got a whole lot of plaster casts in the room. I just sort of set one of those up and draw them. It might be a, a copy of a drawing or a painting I've seen. Yeah. So, I mean, sort of anything actually. Do you keep a sketchbook as well? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I keep those sort of I have those black moleskin things and I sort of just get through them occasionally if, if I'm feeling you know a bit I've got a bit of money at the end of the month then I buy something nicer and I have a you know but it, those really jump out in the box yeah <laughs> um, and I just sort of send them back and they get sort of stored away in London somewhere yeah but the, the I'll probably run out of room in the next couple of years I need right. a bigger storeroom <laughs> um, and are all your paintings multi-sittings and multi-process or do you do a la prima I don't quite trust a la prima in the sense that I love that second time to go back and I, sure. um, I'm, I'm not as quick as I'd like to be I'd love to get a bit quicker mm -hmm. but I, I even with the landscape I love going back another time and you just want to make sure that I'm always worried that what I saw was not the essence of something so and the sort of the I talk about this with the students sometimes if you imagine let's say there's a your painting it's a, it's a town that sits at the bottom of the valley and the thing that gives the valley real meaning is the church tower and it could be one of those days where because it was sort of broken cloud that the town itself is let's say hidden by shadow the whole time right and you can't really see the tower and you go back the second day it's like oh wow okay no the tower's there i, I mean what was i even doing right <laughs> and so i i quite like that second go even if it's only for half an hour or sure. 20 minutes just to make you check you might you might think yep great done it but I, I like that second moment just to double check myself um that applies a little bit to the figure also i I, I enjoy working with sort of transparent paint and those, or sort of mixing up sort of direct application and other times using layers a little bit mm -hmm. too. And so that takes time and not even necessarily, right. you might have a model that comes a couple of days and you take a week off and then come back a little bit again. But I kind of enjoy the possibilities. I think that's one of the, again, the, the beauties of, let's say oil paint is, the, is that way that you can work with layers. Right. And the Alla Prima doesn't quite offer that same richness of interaction of of layers. There are all these reports of Titian kind of painting and then leaving the painting against the wall for a month or two and coming back to it. And whether that's deliberate technical or just the fact that the model had gone off to have a child or, <laughs> you know, one of his sort of fancy sitters who'd gone off, you know, somewhere else. But I think that idea of even just getting a fresh eye is quite helpful. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's funny, I, uh, even with my photography, I realized I can't edit a photo that I've taken right away. Like, How long I'm, do you leave it? Honestly, like I came upon some that I found like that's been a year 
And I was like, I don't remember taking half these, <laughs> which is always fun. But then, yeah, something I thought was going to be good is not. Yep. And something I thought was crap on the way to breakfast, I'm like, oh, that's actually saying that, something yeah. to me now. Because I mean, that thing you mentioned about, you know, retaining that charge. Yeah. You know, like, and, and it must be similar. You know, how do you keep that immediacy over that period of time? Yeah. Um, yeah I guess the nice thing is you, you know, with photography, you have that image, which is locked. Right. And you're not, you're not even building towards it so much. It, it's, it's, I mean, what, for you, what does the editing process... I don't like a lot of editing. Yeah. Um, I usually try to get it in camera, yeah. mainly just because I hate being on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I do. I I was considered a successful photograph if it feels like how it felt on the day, yeah. whether it's like technically good or not, or mm -hmm. even in focus half the time. Yeah. It doesn't bother me as much. Like, life isn't it, always in focus. Right. Yeah. But I'm like, it just if it feels like how I remember that moment mm -hmm. or that light, then I feel like yeah. that's successful. I mean, that's. I'm always intrigued by the overlaps. In all these different fields, and that's like, I mean, that's, um, you know, and that feeling, I guess, can take on a variety of different meanings. As, you know, it can be just a very visceral, immediate thing, and it can be a much more yeah. considered thing. I think, uh, um, you know, we, a lot of students, again, they talk about, you know, how do I know when something's finished? And you kind of just do. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it is a sort of feeling. Yeah, and there's, that, there's no formula to that, I don't think. I mean, I, if there is, no one's told me, and I. Right. <laughs> I mean, I definitely know when I've over-retouched something, and I just yeah. got to reset it back to one. Because, yeah, for, for me, I like subtlety. I don't like a lot of yeah. crunchy pushing around of colors and whatnot. So, yeah. so you, uh, what's, what's next for you? Are you just continuing on, sure. or do you uh, show ever? So I had a show in London um, September 2018, and that, that was great. I, I, yeah, and you sort of build up a body of work. I mean, it, it's hard. I, I, I don't have kind of five-year plans, if that makes sense. So at the moment... I've got um, the Schopenhauer project, which I just outlined, and the same person has also, his favorite painting in the world is the, it's a painting by Caravaggio, mm. that's my interesting reason we talked about earlier. It's in Naples, and he had to run to Naples because he was on the run from Rome. He was, he was exiled from Rome, right. so he was running for his life. And one of the first paintings he made in Naples was this painting of the, the Seven Acts of Mercy. Oh. <laughs> um, and it's an extraordinary painting. It's for a religious order. It depicts you know, um, feeding, the, feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, looking after people in prison, burying the dead, giving clothes to people, sheltering people, all in one painting. It's a mix of wow. references from the classical world, the Old Testament, the New Testament, alluding to things in Islamic texts and classical texts. I mean, it's so rich. Incredible. Um, Anyway, and my friend said, well, actually, I'd like to do an updated version of the seven deadly sins based around the idea that hubris is the, the root to all these different things. And this is going to be probably involving sort of 14 people wow. in one painting. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> what size? So the, 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 the original painting, I have to check this. So, um, but the main painting is, I think, the best part is sort of three and a half, maybe four meters tall. Wow. Um, and probably about three and a half meters wide. So it's a big picture. Yeah. And that's going to take probably a couple of years, if I'm being not of nonstop work, but it's going to take a lot of work just, to, just on a logistical level to organize the models. And you know, I have no experience of painting something on that scale. It fascinates me, the idea of doing it. Right. You know, to deal with allegories, to deal with myth. But again, you know, the first time you do anything, it tends to suck. So I'm, you know, we'll see. <laughs> or at least I do. I mean, I, I, um, I tend to do things by doing them very, learn how to do things by doing them very badly and then slowly getting better. Right. So, you know, skydiving is out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's sort of, that's what's next. And I've got a couple of portrait projects to sort of keep everything ticking over while I'm, I'm working on that as well. Right. So, and then trying to sort of squeeze in, you know, personal work. So I try to go to Venice for a couple of weeks every year to paint there. It's, it's hard to say anything that's original in the biggest sense, but I still feel and this is, I think, what you were talking about, you know, when I'm there and you walk around, I just, I, I feel things all the time. Just Actually, just the delight in seeing and in being. Yeah. And I, I always feel if I can communicate any of that, and people seem to like those pictures as well, then actually I've done something. Yeah. And so just to actually just get out of the studio, to have the fresh air. And actually, Venice is kind of a nice place for that kind of thing. You can, you don't have to have sort of sit down and have lunch. You know, all these places where you can get a little sandwich and a glass of wine. And the Venetians are drinking from 7.30 in right. the morning, so you don't feel out of place. Um, <laughs> For sure. And so, you know, you just wake up when it gets light and go to bed when it gets dark and just sort of, you know, you wander around sort of starting four or five paintings each day and then slowly finishing them off oh, over the course of a couple of weeks. Oh, that um, sounds like heaven. And sort of friends come and join you for a day or two here and there. Right. But it's a, Everyone thinks you know Venice is a romantic place. We have to go on honeymoon. Actually, I, I hate being there with other people. I love being in Venice by myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
the one time I'd been there with someone with like a girlfriend, it was a complete catastrophe. So it's now <laughs> it's a place I go by myself to work. Nice. Um, <laughs> so we're and actually we're taking some of the students of, uh, with one of my colleagues, Ramiro, um, and a couple of other of the teachers here. We're taking sort of twenty of our painting students to to Venice this Friday and Saturday and Sunday to go and sort of look around, see the art. Oh, and, amazing! Um, I'm going up Friday just for the day. Huh, um, well, we'll be there at the same time. Oh, very nice. Perfect. Nice. <laughs> Come and have a drink or something like yeah, that. Just, yeah, I mean, Venice in the winter is just has its own magic yeah. to it. And actually, it's another place. I mean, there, there, aren't quite, there isn't quite the same artisan thing there anymore. It's kind of slowly shutting down. But there are, there are a lot of musicians who live there, filmmakers, artists. I mean, very few live there all year round, but a lot of people use it as a, as a base or as a kind of a, um, as a retreat. Yeah. I thought about moving there for a while, actually. I was really tempted. I really wanted to... Um, to live in Venice for a while. I, Florence is an amazing place, but it's also quite a small city. And once you get to know everyone, everyone gets to know you, your your life becomes rather sort of public. Right. <laughs> um, and I remember, you know, you'd, you'd, I remember seeing, you'd go out and you'd see, you know, the friends I had when I first ma- moved here 20 years ago, their children were starting to kind of, you know, have fun in the evenings and you'd, you'd sort of hear things back from, so not, I've got to get out of here. I want to go and be cold and damp and lonely for a few years and live <laughs> in Venice. In the end, it didn't quite kind of come off and I couldn't find the right space, but I still go there as of every opportunity I get. Yeah. I go. It's only two hours on the train from Florence. Yeah, it's not. I forgot how quick it is. Yeah, um, it's like actually part of the beauty of the city as well. And it sounds like this is about not loving Florence. I think it's one of the great wonders of it is you can be in Milan in an hour and a half, Rome in an hour and a half, you know, Venice two hours, um, London's only a two-hour flight away. Right. And so you you feel quite connected in that sense. And yeah. I'm always whenever the train comes in and I come back, I always feel incredibly happy to be back. So yes. I, you know, it's not it's not about just the love of getting away. It's also that wonderful moment of coming back and walking through the center and, you know, on the way on the way to the flat. And you just think, yep, this is the right the right place. But I love leaving too, actually. Yeah, it's funny. Every time I come back to Florence, it feels like coming home in a yeah. weird way. I, I can't describe it, but I've never. I mean, I lived here for six months, but nothing yeah. serious. <laughs> I would love to again, though. I mean, I think it's. Um, I think for some things, it's. Um, you know, it's a small city and people think, oh, it must be provincial, but actually for, for making things and also for the world of art history, there, it is actually kind of, it sounds odd to say, but like, I mean, the center of the world might be an exaggeration, but um, you, know, you mentioned your own thing with NYU, they have um, La Pietra, I have friends who are involved with Itati, which is the Harvard Research Center. Oh, yeah. And so there are, particularly in terms of sort of art history scholarship and in terms of sort of making really well-crafted things by hand, there is suddenly this concentration of not just people, but actually young people um, right. from all over the world who are really determined to, I don't know, get to know the place. And so when 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 the, when the Florentines who want to understand that energy meet the the world in a positive way, there's a, there's actually a very beautiful friction. When it's just the foreigners in their own bit, it gets a bit sort of stuck. And when it's just the Florentines. It's actually just a lot of people kind of complaining in dark rooms and right. is equally un, you know, unsatisfying. Yeah. But there is actually this very special place. I think it's becoming more interesting and dynamic every year. I would, I would totally agree with that, yeah. Because um, I mean, it's, it's your first time you've been here for pity. First time, for yeah. Pity, but I mean, um, you know, even just, I, I've, I, I flew in yesterday from, from Paris on the way back from somewhere else. And you, know, you just see all these amazing outfits on the plane, and you, know, you feel also you feel deeply inadequate about the quality of your own luggage. <laughs> For sure, um, I need a better bag. No, um, I, I was definitely woefully underdressed over there today. I mean, you know, and so, some of it's ridiculous, but actually, just the idea that all these people who care about aesthetics—you um, know—it's it, it not completely my world, but it, I, it's interesting actually. Yeah. Um, no, one of the. Um, Photographers who I've interviewed for this podcast, who's since become a good friend, he's here. Um, he does a lot of the street style photography, yeah. but he started as a tailor apprentice, hmm. and he started photography because his boss said, "Why don't you just go shoot?" This was in London. Yep. Go shoot people in suits in the morning and look for silhouette and how the clothing is draped. And yeah. it turns out he was a better photographer than he was a tailor. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I thought that was fascinating yeah. to uh, approach it that way. No, really interesting. Yeah, and I mean I've. Um, through some I did a couple of portraits of last year, I've actually got a lot more like interested in that whole world of clothing. He was, for him, the clothes were a, such an integral part of the, the portrait, more than anyone else ever painted. Mm. Um, and he'd been going to see this tailor in London who'd done a lot of work for sort of, you know, people like sort of David Bowie and Mick Jagger in the 1970s. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, made these exquisitely, beautifully crafted clothes, you know, wonderful kind of high rope shoulders and, you know, beautifully cut lapels and everything else. And just actually to have a world opened up so that when you, it's a bit like understanding, like studying anatomy, you don't have to know the names or anything, 
but you suddenly as the body moves you understand a little bit more about what you're seeing right and in a way with clothing it's a, a, um you know a, a painter to some extent at the start of his career it's not something you can you can buy or be involved in directly but at the same time it's nice to understand something and to have a sense of quality in your um and again it, it gives it to understand it better i mean it, it gives you more more choices it makes more possibilities i think drapery probably is one of the things that's hardest to if you're interested in something timeless the light on the face hasn't changed but people obviously dress very differently sure yeah and i think one of the challenges for all of us who paint in this kind of tradition today is you know what do we get people to wear and how right you know i mean actually blue jeans are a kind of a nightmare to paint <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, um, yeah and if you look at people in the you know let's say you, you mentioned sergeant earlier mm-hmm. you know if you look at the clothes that they were wearing you know, he's he's not as it were doing a fashion plate illustration, but he obviously took great delight in the silhouettes, in the colours, in the different fabrics. You know, Rembrandt the same. It's you know, it's it's still about revealing the body and the body language, or explicitly hiding it. But you know, may, maybe the clothes we wear, or some of them, don't offer the same possibilities. But also, maybe we have to be more imaginative in the way we do it. Maybe right. a, um, you know, maybe an Adidas shell suit does offer po- you know pictorial possibilities, and we just haven't been smart enough to. To understand them yet yeah it's that, interesting I mean, i'm personally drawn to classic menswear and tailoring just for yeah. its timelessness that does beg the question would you paint yeah. somebody in that's going to stand the test of time I mean, I, and i i remember looking at as a pretty one of my favorite sergeant portraits and it's a it's in boston i think it's in it's part of harvard university's collection and it's a guy called henry lee higginson and he was kind of a civil war hero but he also donated a lot of money to to get sort of the the symphony orchestra going in boston mm-hmm. and various other things and he's sort of sitting on this chair in this very kind of old mastery brown background and he's got his sort of civil war cloak over his legs as he sits and so i think without copying the painting i think hang on okay you know the cloak could easily be a device that let's say titian picked that the sergeant picked up from titian or velasquez right but it tells the story of that person so he's using right an older device to tell a story that has a contemporary relevance and i think there's something in that i think that's totally. the that's where we have to be kind of smarter or you know you know, people still wear white collars, which isn't that different from, you know, the day of, you know, Titian Velasquez, you know, those black doublets with a little bit of white on top. Yeah. And people wear black, t- you could wear someone with a white t-shirt underneath a black one. Right. And so you can play around with modernity in a way that is still referencing and even using the same compositional devices that are part of the paintings I love. And I think uh, hope, you know, my hope is that by having by expanding the conversation and talking more to people who work in the clothing industry and who are making clothes, you know, I can make better decisions and smarter decisions and just more interesting ones sure. um, than I am right now. Right. No, I love that idea. That's really fascinating to bring mm-hmm. that into it for sure. And I remember uh, a friend of mine from school who's now an actor, he, um, Annie Leibowitz took a couple of um, photos of him. I think at the time he was, um, it was very, it was, they were modern clothes, but he looked like an 18th century figure mm-hmm. and I just remember thinking looking at her because I thought she did that so well and I thought hang on I'm, I, you know, I'm meant to be this traditional painter you're this you know, modern photographer and actually you're, you're understanding these rhythms and that language more profoundly and more fluently <laughs> than I can so it's like it's, I can't just complain about the modern world I, it's on me to to learn more right oh that's fascinating um, I love that idea and actually even Irving Penn I think he, has, he had an amazing sense of you know silhouette absolutely yeah um, his work for me is incredible yeah yeah um, so I think it's, it's not quite, I think I, I very much, and I'm happy to belong to, and at times to even be told off for being too old fashioned, but I, I think there's a, there's a dialogue with modernity that's really important to have. And we can, um, you know, to be shamelessly cherry picking the things you like right. from these different <laughs> moments. I think that's the privilege of being alive yeah, now. Completely. Um, no, I love all that. Just, uh, just one last question, sure. totally selfishly. What's your favorite art store in Florence? Okay, there. Can I say two? Of course. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I think um, for the most part, for people who want to buy really good quality products, um, Zeki, which is by the Duomo, Z E double C H I. But actually, if I, the, I think the most beautiful and interesting shop in Florence is a place called Bizzari, B I double Z A double R I, and the the quality of what they sell there is absolutely incredible. Really, I've never. That's the I've best turpentine in the world. Also, wonderful hand cream. Painting's terrible for your hands. Um, and it's not sort of a, a brand or anything. It's on Via Condotta. So it's between the Piazza Signoria and the Duomo. Oh, and it's okay. like an old apothecary. 
So it's just a wooden counter with these. I mean, it feels like going into like a Harry Potter world. Oh my God, I'm Harry Potter shop. I gotta go there tomorrow. Or maybe um, even this evening. <laughs> and it's the, they supply a lot of uh, materials to sort of the top restorers. Um, oh, fascinating. Not just in Florence, but you know, much further afield as well. Very cool. Um, I will definitely thank you for that tip. I will so yeah, I'd say Zeki for the most part, but Bizarre is one of those places. I, I don't want to sort of, I, I, I don't want to have to queue every time I go there. I hope. Right. hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, for, for, for certain things, particularly turpentine and for oil and the quality of what they have is absolutely first rate. Cool. And, uh, and if you're going to buy a fancy sketchbook, where do you like to go for that? Again, Zeki has really good ones. There's also another drawing shop called Rigacci. Oh, yeah. Which is on Via dei Servi up to the Duomo. Right. And um, they have, again, I think particularly for drawing things, the, their range of pencils and paper is, again, of a, a really high standard. They're, they're very close to the academia, right. the, the city art school, yeah. um, the state-run art school. And that's um, that's a really good resource as well. Nice. Yeah, I think they, they have their own papers that they make, right? Yeah. 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 It's yeah. a beautiful shop. Yeah, it's a really beautiful shop. Cool. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this no, with me today and for the tour. I, Not at I all. just love being here and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you as well.